Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, Blofeld's eyeball unlocked. Why don't we all just pop it in our eye socket then, Cam? Excellent question. Or carry it around on a platter at a party. Yeah, you're, you're definitely the platter holder. <laughs> Uh-oh, that doesn't bode well for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that, uh, that, that specter party is a bit sordid, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It's like Las Vegas, where you and I will be pretty soon, right? <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. So hopefully we don't end up the same way everyone else did at that party. <laughs> no kidding. Well, we, we've already slightly telegraphed it there, Cam, but the question goes to you as always. What are we talking about this week? Yes, Scott, I have to bring back a popular trend on Spy Hards. I have not gotten to go to this well very often during the popular? Daniel Craig era. It's very popular. We've had requests for more of them, uh, which is... Your the, mother doesn't uh, count. <laughs> the singing of the Bond title, which I was not able to do for Spectre, Casino Royale, or Quantum of Solace. But this week, we are tackling 2021's No Time to Die. And the rest of this podcast will be done in the Billie Eilish sort of wispy voice starting from now. I did the best I could. It's actually very difficult to do, which is why she is a multimillionaire and very talented, and I am not. I can't disagree with that assessment, Cam. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's a lot to unpack with this film. A lot to talk about. It's actually interesting as well, because this is the first time we've ever had a declassified review and actually then gone on to do a full review of the uh, film. So it'll be interesting to see how this, this pans out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Without Remorse revisit. Perhaps with that one, Cam, you might actually find some remorse. <laughs> I already have. <laughs> mm. And lots of it. <laughs> plenty of it. Plenty of it. But yeah, that, that'll be interesting. And I think it's also just interesting to talk about this is the end of Daniel Craig. It's his final film as James Bond. Obviously, it's the film that kills James Bond. And we have a guest joining us later on in the show. But firstly, I think for those who haven't actually seen the film, or have read about No Time to Die, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. No Time to Die, the mission that changes everything, begins. Bond has left active service and is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix Leiter from the CIA turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. I have two notes. Mm -hmm. Number one, mm -hmm. the tagline stinks. Uh, number two, this is only the second Bond film in the history of the franchise where it makes sense to mention Felix Leiter in the synopsis. What's the first time? Uh, that would be License to Kill. Ah, of course, yes. The 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 leg incident. Yeah, I guess you mm. could maybe make the mildest of arguments for mentioning him offhandedly in a Doctor No synopsis, but other than that, no. I mean, just so you can write Jack Lord, that's always fun. But uh, yeah, it's also interesting that this starts off by saying is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. We haven't spoken about the film just yet, but that life he's living in Jamaica sounds looks really lonely. I mean, Bond 
said up front he's supposed to be like half monk half hitman that seems like a monk style kind of life living just in isolation fishing a lot uh i can kind of go with it sure would would you be having the outside shower as well uh no i mean let's be honest that's not the way i want to live i am not a like live in the middle of nowhere kind of guy i can't see you fishing either i did when i was a kid but it's not something that like i'm passionate about at all <laughs> yeah all the fishermen listening uh, we love you <laughs> just so passionate about it well done um well that this is the next thing to do then you know because we spoke about like our initial thoughts on the film when we did our declassified review, so I won't sort of dive into that too much. But it is sort of interesting to talk about. This is the first Bond film I've sort of actively tracked the production of because of the show, mostly. I mean, this the film was announced before we started the show, but I think the show had started well, during lockdown after the first release date was moved. So we were paying a lot of attention to this uh, this film's genesis. Yeah, I remember tracking a lot of the Bond films through production, even things like, uh, I think it was uh, Die Another Day. Um, I remember reading a lot of information on that, but it was at a time where like you really couldn't trust what you're reading. It was like newspapers printing blurbs about it. You know, I remember the Catherine Zeta-Jones Beyond the Ice kind of stuff that was floating around there um mm. and uh with this one yeah i mean i can't say that necessarily i was following it closer than i was with specter or skyfall or the other craig films but mm -hmm. it was the one where i had the most i guess importance attached to it because we were tracking it you know on the show it was just offhandedly coming up in conversations about bond yeah and we knew that when this movie came out we would be making something of a deal about it on the show so i was i guess more even more so personally invested in the kind of making of of a Bond film than usual. And plus we're in discussions online when it was, you know, the trailers were coming out and they were releasing posters and things like that. So you would be exposed to a lot more things than necessarily you would have been as just someone who would see a trailer on YouTube. Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, you know, I often will uh, mention with people like you have your Bond birthday. And it's mm. the Bond movie closest to your birthday. You know, like for me, I would be, I guess, a for your eyes only baby. I'm born in 80, but it's like the one that follows it is eight. That was 81. So for you, sure. what what is your Bond birthday? Uh, Living Daylights, 1987. There you go. Yeah. And so like, I think No Time to Die is the Spy Hard's Bond birthday movie. Ah, okay. What a way, uh, what a way to connect us. It's the one that blew him up. Uh, it's the one we're connected to. That's, Actually, right. that's very much us that is appropriate and so when the podcast goes off the air it'll be like the worst bond movie ever it'll be like casino royale 67 part two <laughs> mm, that that is very much us well cam let's talk about that genesis that prolonged period of uh maturation that no time to die went through can you tell us a little bit about how we went from spectre to here right so like Daniel Craig on the press tour for like Spectre, it was very clear this man was not passionate about making another Bond movie at that point. Mm. I believe he said he wanted, would rather slit his wrists than make another Bond film. And yet... Slightly dramatic. And yet, that's like 2015 when he's on that press tour, and they started developing this movie in early 2016. So they really weren't taking what Daniel Craig was saying that seriously. They were just stuffing his mouth with money. Like, shh, 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 sh
It'll all be good. Don't worry. Don't worry. So they hired screenwriters Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who've been with the franchise for quite a while now in both the mm-hmm. uh, the um, Brosnan era as well as throughout the Craig era. So they were brought back in to write. At that point, there was three names being floated as director, and it was pretty publicly acknowledged. And those three were Jan Damage, who had directed the movie 71, which was a thriller. I don't know that he's done that much since that jumps out to me. He's definitely the, I guess, the least significant name of the three. So it was him, um, David McKenzie, who directed Hell or High Water. And that movie had gotten like some Oscar noms. So it was pretty, uh, it was held in very high regard. And then also Denis Villeneuve, uh, who was the most prestigious of the three, but, I mean, he ended up doing Dune, and he chose that over No Time to Die, and I think uh, history worked out okay. I, I think he's done all right from that one. Yeah, exactly. Plus, Hans Zimmer's score. Hans Zimmer won an Oscar by working on Dune. So, yeah, Dune was the gift that kept giving to those guys. Mm, absolutely. But somehow, those three fell by the wayside, and it was someone else who emerged as the front runner, and that was Danny Boyle. And he had, of course, a bit of a Bond connection. He had directed those incredibly popular Olympic spots featuring Daniel Craig and the Queen that were really Bond-themed and really captured the energy of the franchise at that point in time. And, I mean, he is someone who I feel like has just been around for me so long that just saying the name Danny Boyle, uh, you don't even have to explain him that much. But, you know, Mm -hmm. British director, really burst onto the scene in the mid-90s with Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, and has become one of the most interesting directors we have out there, doing movies like The Beach, Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours, Steve Jobs, uh, the sequel to Train Spotting T2. So he's a director I have a lot of time for, and one of the things that was kind of attached with him joining the project was that he wanted to work solely with screenwriter John Hodge who was a frequent collaborator of his who had written Train Spotting and Shallow Grave, and also actually more recently, not associated with Danny Boyle, but wrote the Ipcris File TV miniseries. Okay. I haven't really caught that yet, so I haven't got much of an opinion on it, but uh, hopefully it's nothing like the movie. Fair. Hey, hey, how dare you? How dare <laughs> almost you? Almost had you there. Almost <laughs> got you. Almost yeah. got you. So the idea was Hodge would have sole screenplay on this one, and sure. so Neil Purvis and Robert Wade went their separate ways and were not at this point in time attached to work on No Time to Die or the movie that would become No Time to Die in the future. Mm -hmm. So what happened was Hodge's first draft, which was set in Russia and featured James Bond having a child, that was given the green light. And so Danny Boyle was locked to direct and they had a December 2018 start date with Daniel Craig, who they had convinced to come back and had announced his uh, return on TV. Too much fanfare. He, he was muffled with the money in his mouth. I'm back with James Bond. Yeah, okay. So the story of what went wrong, I feel like is still kind of lost. And it's the sort of thing that I'm sure, you know, 20 years from now, they'll do an update on like the Bond archives book or something like that, where they have all the details. It's going to be a while, I think. You know, they're going to lock away a lot of this information in the Eon vaults for a while. But... um There was at the time theories that Danny Boyle was leaving because he wanted to kill James Bond. And I think that that has proven to probably not be the case because it would seem that Danny Boyle uh, would have been doing exactly what Eon wanted in the first place. Mm. So I don't think that was the cause. There was rumors of villain casting. Uh, Danny Boyle has just said it was about kind of developing that draft that John Hodge had written and the directions they were going, I guess they were just having creative differences and it just fell apart. 
It it is a a tough one because it this film is serving a lot of different stories and threads from previous films, and maybe his idea was to come in with his writer and just have his own story. But I I could see there being a lot of pressure from above, and it has to have been, to acknowledge stuff like Madeline Swan Inspector and to acknowledge Blofeld and pay off all this stuff from like the first four films. And a lot of, I can see a lot of directors just kind of wanting to have their own vision. Yeah, like, I don't know the intricate details. Like, did Danny Boyle want to cut loose all the, like, Madeline and Blofeld stuff? Like, I'm not even sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know anything, and I'm just hypothesizing. But, yeah, but, yeah. but as, as, a, as a, a creative person, I can understand them feeling constrained by what is a, a, a already a hefty weight around the neck of this film before you've even started writing it. Yeah, like I would not blame Danny Boyle at all if that was something he wanted to do, mm. was just move on. Because I think a lot of filmmakers would have wanted to move on from, you know, Spectre was not received the best. So, like, why are you holding on to kind of these vestigial tales of a movie that wasn't ultra popular? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, they needed a director badly. And they wound up getting writer-director Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who is a California-born... Japanese-American director who really burst onto the scene in 2009 with the movie Sin Nombre, which was an independent film shot in Mexico. And he proceeded then to just do a lot of critically acclaimed projects. He did an adaptation of Jane Eyre. He did the first season of True Detective, the film Beasts of No Nation with Idris Elba, as well as the miniseries Maniac. And he'd been looking to do something, I guess, a little more mainstream because he had been attached for quite a while to the movie It, the Stephen King adaptation. Mm. And he had cast Will Poulter as Pennywise. He had a take on it and just old creative differences sprung up again and he fell out with that. So Bond actually wound up being, I guess, his uh, first big mainstream project. I, I, Whenever I hear creative differences, I always wonder what the actual conversation is behind the scenes. But considering what we got in part two of It... Well, I, I'm I would have actually taken anyone else's interpretation of that story. Yeah, I would be curious about Will Poulter as Pennywise. That could have been interesting. But like, yeah, I, I agree. They they did not crack it as a whole. I think part one they did, but not part two. Part one's very. I think part one's very successful. But the, as soon as the adults get involved, it it just lost all of its magic. It's kind of the problem with it. The book cuts back and forth between the two throughout the entire story mm. versus like segmenting them you know as the kids in one movie and the adults in the second uh mm -hmm. the adult stuff is not as interesting in the book so no yeah that's kind of the problem and it, there's less there's less fear when it's adults dealing with this sort of stuff whereas like you can feel the sort of visceral fear of kids who are stuck in this horrible situation with Pennywise chasing them around the town. So yeah, uh, I can understand why it's maybe not as magic even when you read it in the book. But hey-ho, we're not here to talk about it. No, and Fuganaga had met with Eon. Um, they had considered him for Spectre when Sam Mendes was considering walking out the door after Skyfall. And he'd also like met with them, I think a separate time, to discuss relaunching Bond. Because Fukunaga, it's probably more of a general meeting, but had some ideas as to how to reboot the franchise with Craig moving on. And ultimately wound up getting hired to do No Time to Die instead. I don't know what the future would have held, but uh, Fukunaga 
you know, there's been allegations about him and he has not worked really since those allegations kind of came to light. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder at the time if it was a little bit of a, you kind of bail us out for no time to die. And we will be very interested to hear what you have to input about a relaunch. Like perhaps you're directing the relaunch. No, that that is a easy way of explaining how that relationship was perhaps set up to be. I mean, I'm sure he's off selling timeshares with Army Hammer now. But there was a moment in time where he was sort of the golden child of the Bond universe, really. He was, yeah. And it was a very exciting hire. I remember being absolutely thrilled when mm. I read that he got the job. Because some of the other names that I mentioned earlier, it's nothing against those filmmakers. They just don't excite me to see their name attached to it. Safe hands. Like, I'm sure Danny Boyle would have given this a very interesting film. Yeah. And you know it would have been very competent. But I, I don't know if Danny Boyle's done anything for a long time, really, that has excited me. I think Danny Boyle would have excited me just because he is someone who's so unique. He's mm. never going to make a movie that feels like anyone could have made it. Sure. But when I heard like names like Jan Demange and David McKenzie, I was like, I, I guess. like mm. I, I've liked some of their work, but they, don't, they aren't names that if you tell me they're making it, that I'm like, oh, I can't wait. But then again, Bond has excelled in steady hands in the past. I mean, John Glenn is a beloved director to Bond fans, but in filmmaking circles, he's not renowned for his direction. Uh, but he knew how to make a good Bond film. It's very true. It's an excellent point. And so what happened was Fuganaga is hired and is also co-writing the film. And so they bring back Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. And so the three of them are kind of working together, trying to bash out a story for this movie that incorporates all the Spectre stuff they need, plus a proper wrap-up to the story. Uh, I can only imagine. And in 2019, they started bringing in other writers to help out as well. Paul Haggis, who had worked on Casino Royale and Quantum, came back, as well as Scott Z. Burns, who worked on The Bourne Ultimatum, Contagion, Side Effects, a number of Soderbergh films, actually. Sure. They both were added to the party. Whether they contributed anything that wound up in the finished product, I don't know. They are not credited on the film, so maybe even just been spitballing other ideas that mm. just never came to pass. Yeah, it Bond's films of the Daniel Craig era seem to have this way of amassing writers. It's, I mean, it's not uncommon in big franchise movies to have these like lists of writers, but I don't know that it's the best practice either. Well, it, it's not something I ever used to pay attention to watching films. It's only something I've started to pay attention to from doing the show is like... It's like when you see a TV show that has like 10 exec producers. Yeah. Like you just, your hairs start to stand up a little bit like, oh, oh, what does this mean? And when I see so many writers, uh, that, that old meme of the song Too Many Cooks starts playing in my head and I get a bit worried. And let me tell you, from the point of view of Spy Hard's podcast production, when I'm putting together notes for these behind the scenes, there's nothing I like seeing less than a list of like five writers on something. Is that because you have to go and read all their backstories? Yes, exactly. Mm. I see one writer. I am just doing cartwheels. <laughs> it's instant knockless, isn't it, basically? <laughs> Pretty it's, much. It's one writer or less than 19 minutes, you're on the list. <laughs> that's, the, that's the integrity we hold this list. Um, <laughs> How quick can we get out of here? <laughs> so it seems like figuring out the story of No Time to Die was incredibly stressful and overwhelming. And Fukunaga said that at one point he was even like, he he just summoned up this idea of like, what if the whole movie 
is basically a fantasy caused by the needle to the brain that Bond took in Spectre in the torture chair that's, that uh, Blofeld was holding him in. And so partway through this movie, probably towards the end, he wakes up and he's still in that lair. And the entire thing was, uh, you know, the torture. I I can imagine a lot of people waking up and screaming when that moment happens. I think that would have been a more controversial choice than blowing Bond up. Yeah, I agree. I kind of love the loopiness of it, but I also understand how something like this only happens when you are pulling out your hair trying to figure out a, a story for this movie. Also, I don't want to have to experience uh, Christoph Waltz with no socks on again. <laughs> fair. Totally fair. So at a certain point, they bashed basically the plot of the movie together and a mm-hmm. story structure. But due to Craig's demand, they brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who Craig was a big fan of for her work on TV shows like Drifters, Fleabag, Killing Eve. And he wanted more of a polish on this script. And she does have a credit on the film, so she contributed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But her primary goal was to work on dialogue, character development, and humor. I guess the building blocks of the plot were pretty enforced, but there was much work done, particularly the thing that gets underlined a lot is the Paloma sequence in Cuba, which was more of a generic contact character. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge brought a lot of humor, a lot of personality, and did a lot of work there. Well, that, uh, I mean, that whole sequence is one of my favorites of the film, which we'll get into in a minute. But it's interesting that that was one of the focuses of the film, because that genuinely feels like a a scene I can go back to at any point. It feels fully realized. So I I have to imagine then that the original version was probably quite just a a Bond affair. Yeah, I mean, Purvis and Wade are known to be very like plot-oriented writers. Like you bring them Mm. on to basically break down the A to B to C's of your Bond plot. Sure. Uh, I don't know that that's Fukunaga's thing so much. I would imagine he was probably much more interested in like the thematics and the character mm-hmm. drive of Bond. I do think like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, as you know, Paloma was obviously a big influence, but I would imagine that she was probably working on the Madeline character quite a lot as well. Which rings true, because I think the character of Madeline greatly improves in this film. Big time. Mm. Well, it sounds like it was a good hire overall then. Yeah, definitely. And there was a couple other interesting uh, events that happened over the course of production. Christoph Waltz, very publicly announced that he would not be returning as Blofeld in this movie. Why? And I don't understand because it's like, if there was a big reveal that Blofeld is in this movie, like a big one, I get it. But it's made pretty clear almost right off the bat that they have him in prison. It's not like the uh, Blofeld return is a big deal. Mm. Actually, he's on the cell phone right in the pre-title sequence. Yeah. Well, it's it's also weird because, you know, when he signed up to play Blofeld in Spectre, I'm not saying that it's a guarantee, but like any actor would have had some sort of assumption in their mind when they signed up for it that there would be more. Mm-hmm. You don't take that role on as a one-off. Well, actually, I take that back. Everyone did in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But... I think in a modern age, a character as big as Blofeld, they would probably want it to have been played by the same person for every film he's in. And so, yes, I think there would have been some sort of implication that he would have come back. I think it's mostly Christoph Waltz negotiating in the press, mm. uh, like probably getting a little more money to for his return. That would be my guess. 
Or maybe he just looked at the history of Blofeld and was like, whenever Blofeld is paid off, it's always a disappointment, and I want to avoid that. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, we will for sure. Um, so there was also a delay because Daniel Craig was running and injured his ankle and required surgery. So the production was halted for a period. And Rami Malek actually had to ultimately, because of this delay, shoot his material as Sappin the same time he was shooting the final season of Mr. Robot. So it was uh, quite a stressful production for him. Um, a lot of bouncing back and forth between jobs. Well, firstly, that, that explains a lot of his delivery. Oh, in the film that's cold scott because he seems well, so tired yes yes exactly yeah he needs some caffeine but uh, i also will just point out it feels like daniel craig's body is as fragile as my ego <laughs> i mean the man has definitely taken some damage doing these bond films i i know brosnan did as well and i guess when you are the most physical bond ever mm. and you are also aging into your 50s the odds of this happening get higher and higher I, I I don't want to sound like I'm you know taking the Mickey out of Daniel Craig any more than I should because he is a physical specimen he still is and I don't think I would be running through walls in my 40s let alone my 50s and I'm only in my 30s so kudos to the man damn right and there was another hiccup where they hired uh, composer Dan Romer. Uh, to compose the score for this film, he'd worked on Beasts of No Nation and Maniac with Fukunaga and just departed due to creative differences. And so Hans Zimmer was hired January 2020, um, not really that much in advance of one of the release dates they had set for this movie. Yeah, just thinking about that, he must have done most of his production work in a, his like private studio because obviously coronavirus would have set in a couple of months after this date. Yeah. The man is known to be something of a factory, and he managed to get this done, for sure. Mm, interesting. Okay, sure. And Fukunaga had an amazing quote about just like the entire production and dealing with creating the story and just all the hiccups, where he said, I felt like I was turning into Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, shriveling into the earth. This, uh, I, I take that as like a, uh, a comment on like the pressure a little bit. It was like he's sort of that. Is that what he's getting at? I think he's just talking about how exhausting the entire process was of making the movie. Sure, sure. I, I, that makes sense. My question would be then, if he's Mr. Burns, who is Smithers? Michael G. Wilson? Yeah, I guess he's sort of like looking over the whole time whilst commenting on everything. Maybe the voice is a little similar too, actually, now that I think about it. Is Michael G. Wilson kind of sassy? No, not at all. Hmm. Because like, like Smithers has a kind of like a little bit of a lip to him, like he, he like behind Mr. Burns' back, he'll make the odd sort of jibe at him. I mean, who knows? Maybe that Michael G. Wilson's a real rascal on the set. <laughs> yeah, you just don't see it because he's silent in all the films. So maybe he is like that. No, he's like consider him slime, sir. In uh, yeah. Never Dies. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, there you go. Yep. Uh, I I can definitely understand the, the process of making a Bond film, taking it out of you just a little bit. Yeah, and so, of course, this movie had many uh, release dates kicked around. First off, just mm. due to production issues, and then COVID. So, uh, this was a very expensive movie. It cost $250 million according to what you read online. But I suspect it was more, and I know that there have been people that indicated it was considerably higher, like $300 million plus. 
because uh, if you factor in the fact that they had to run multiple marketing campaigns yep. for this movie as well due to COVID releases being pushed around, uh, it would have been pretty costly. So as I said, $250 million is the acknowledged number currently. Domestically, it did 160.9, international 613.3 for a worldwide total of 774.2. I mean, definitely very good money. And also, this is kind of early-ish in the, you know, easing of the pandemic where people aren't necessarily racing back to theaters. So this movie was, you know, with that taken into account, a pretty big success. Yeah, when you look at it that way. And also, I was just doing that sort of mental math because they always say online, if you double the budget, that sort of solves the marketing. Yeah. But obviously, this had a prolonged marketing cycle and several, like, big promotions. If it only made 700, I wonder if they actually barely barely made any money on this film i think that might be the case crazy and it was in terms of box office a step down from specter and skyfall skyfall had the you know the craig era's highest point with 1.1 billion but specter Mm -hmm. had done 881 um million dollars so also like very massive this movie's you know like 100 million uh just over 100 million less than specter but it is above Casino Royale, which did 616, and Quantum of Solace, which did 589. I wonder if adjusted for inflation, those would be a bit different. Well, they obviously would, but like, I wonder how far they would be different. I think if you were to account for Casino Royale at 616, that would that might be higher. Yeah, I think that's like eight, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this landed at number four for the year, one spot above F9, the Fast Saga which was one of the other movies that welcomed me back to the multiplex. In fact, that was the first one I saw. What a welcome back. Amazing welcome back. What can I say? Mm. It was all about family. Uh, The top three for the year. Number one, Spider-Man No Way Home. Number two, The Battle of Lake Changjin. And number three, Hi Mom. Uh, Spots two and three were Chinese productions because there was not a lot of American films being released because of the pandemic. And so Mm. China really dominated the box office for that year as well as 2020. But that that's also because there wasn't a lot of Western films releasing. So, and also people were afraid to go back. So everything was just sort of lessened, right? Like it wasn't like there were more people in China going to theaters. There was just less people in, in America, basically. Exactly. Yes. And then even like big movies like black widow, which did play in theaters were also being shown simultaneously on Disney Plus, you know, if you paid $20. So that cut into box office as well. So there's various factors as to why some of these American movies at this time were not making the big box office, in addition to people just being wary about going to theaters. And there's also a lot of, like, films that came out that didn't actually come out in theaters in North America. Like, I remember Tenet came out, well, this is 2020, I think, in the summer of 2020. Yeah. British theaters had opened, so I saw it in the theater, but I think you had to watch it on streaming. Uh, no, it did play here in theaters. It's just that at that point in time in North America, people really weren't going to theaters. Which was fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and so this movie had a better run at the awards circuit than Spectre did. Uh, the Oscars, it won Best Song, which I suppose Spectre did as well. But it was also nominated for visual effects and sound. Mm. But the BAFTAs is the big difference. Because the BAFTAs were like, get the hell out of here, Spectre. We want nothing to do with you whatsoever. Smart. However, they had they turned around for No Time to Die. They gave it the award for Best Editing. And then also nominated it for Best British Film of the Year, Cinematography, Visual Effects, and Sound. 
I could see that. I, I, I think the BAFTAs were very friendly to Skyfall as well, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. They were raining down nominations on Skyfall. See, these, uh, these British folk, they're pretty smart. Yeah. I will give some points to the editing. The editing in this movie, it's very long, so I think that may have been part of the reason the Academy wasn't necessarily bending over backwards to nominate it for editing. Like, thank you. Yeah. You've made it shorter. You've edited it. Yeah, okay, yeah. There's some really clever editing in this movie, though, and I want to just mention, I really love the moment where you have the setup for the, uh, you know, the biotech weapon gone awry, and M mm. goes, get me 007, and it cuts to Daniel Craig when it's actually a fake out. Mm. Very clever. I always thought that was yeah. really, really clever. Plays with the audience expectations. I like that. I like that. Good stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm glad it got some attention, to be fair, because I think this film does a lot of stuff right, which we'll get into. Yeah, so that wraps me up on No Time to Die. Cam, we've painted the picture of No Time to Die, and it's going to be a, a momentous occasion to see off Daniel Craig and quite the effort it would take. So I've decided we needed an extra pair of hands. Mm. Someone to really help us surprise and uh, take a, a good look at the final Daniel Craig film. So joining us on the show, he is a writer. He is a podcaster, and he has assured us he has had three weeks of training. It is Mr. Dave Schilling. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, on my list of James Bond movies. That's for sure. It is on the list. <laughs> it exists. It has been. Yes. Yes. It has been on my list for at least uh, two years. Mm, mm, okay. Well, I think before we dive into the, the, uh, the treasures as it were, of no time to die. I, I want to hear your like villain origin story, as it were. Like James Bond for you is, is clearly a big thing. How did James Bond come to you, and sort of how did you find the franchise? Well, um, I am a millennial, so mm -hmm. my first James Bond was Pierce Brosnan. Hell yeah! I, <laughs> I remember seeing GoldenEye on television, on HBO or Cinemax or one of those pay cable channels, and. Uh, I gotta say, Famke Jansen in that movie <laughs> made made some things happen for me that I hadn't had happen before, and uh, that the rest was history. Like I just uh, I taped it off of uh, HBO and I watched certain scenes more than others. Um, James Bond is just awesome. I I don't know what else to say. You know, there's there was. At the time, if you're a younger person, you won't understand this at all. But there was a time when people watched linear cable. <laughs> and in the United States, James Bond movies would be on TBS during the Thanksgiving or Christmas holidays. And they would just show as many as possible. Sometimes in chronological order, sometimes not. They'd always show on Her Majesty's Secret Service after midnight <laughs> when no one was up to watch it. <laughs> uh, so that was one of the last ones that I ever saw. Sorry, George. But I would... Just, <laughs> sorry sorry to, to everybody who worked on that amazing film sorry to telly savalas um but that was just like a tradition in my in my family my dad was never a huge fan i think a lot of people who were bond fans today their their parent one of their parents was was a huge fan neither of my parents really cared but i did because i just thought he was so cool he had the great cars he dressed well um he always had something funny to say and so those those marathons just became kind of a routine in my household for the holiday season. And I think that's probably true in the UK, too, of just like it's on 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 Christmas Day or Boxing Day or something. Um, and then 
I would just go to see them in the theaters. You know, once it took hold on at home and I was old enough to go see these movies by myself. Mm. The first one I saw in theaters was Tomorrow Never Dies. Once I could do that, then I was off to the races and I was buying all the, the, the behind the scenes books and, and, and researching it as much as I could and, and, and really immersing myself in the fandom to the point where now I have a Spectre ring that I wear huh. every single day on my middle finger. Wow, that's commitment. <laughs> it, it, and it's also it looks like one of the newer Spectre rings, not the old classic style. So you are yeah, it's it's the um the Christoph Waltz Spectre ring. Mm. Uh, I the 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 octopus is too big on the other one. That's too gaudy for me. This is very classy. <laughs> it looks like a wedding band. So it's like I married to to James Bond's illegitimate brother. I mean, in terms of like a, a clandestine organization, having identifying rings is probably the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But I, it <laughs> it is great in its own way. <laughs> You know what's stupider? You know what's stupider? Lapel pins. Mm. Quantum had lapel pins. They did. That's why true. did they? What? What? I guess at least for that, that was the invite. Like that proves when you go to the secret party, um, to the secret opera where all the bad guys are doing the business. At least it's like, oh yeah, that guy must be in the deal because he's got the, he's got the pin <laughs> on. But it's yeah, it's weird that they're printing merchandise. It's funny, they so often talk about how Bond is a really bad spy because he just walks into places and is like, hey, I'm James Bond. Um, it seems like most of the organizations he goes up against also aren't that bright. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all about branding yeah. in the James Bond universe. <laughs> and so it sounds like our genesis was the same with sort of you and I, at least, Piers Brosnan being the man. And then we both had to sort of deal with the transition to Daniel Craig, which is a very different kind of Bond. How did, how mm -hmm. did you find that transition period? It was not easy. I was very skeptical. To be fair, I did not particularly enjoy Die Another Day. It felt like the bottom had dropped out of the franchise by that point. Pierce was starting to get Roger Moore old. Mm -hmm. Like there's old and there's Roger Moore old. <laughs> Daniel Craig never got to be Roger Moore old because of human growth hormone or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I'm not saying I know anything. He's a lovely man from everything I've heard. But he's got all of the science and medicine and all the things to stay in elite tip-top shape that clearly Pierce Brosnan did not have access to because he just looked like an old guy in, in that movie. And so it, it was clear that the, the franchise needed a jolt of, of energy. And Barbara Broccoli always talked about, like, after 9-11, we thought, how can we keep making these silly movies? Well, they may die another day. <laughs> so that was after 9-11. Um, but it was clear it needed a reboot. It needed to kind of dust off the sillier aspects of it and to align itself more with what was popular at the time, which was the Bourne identity and 24 and all of these mm -hmm. very grim and gritty spy tales. Um, and, and, and Daniel Craig was blonde. So it was like, there's, there's a lot of changes going on. He's a blonde guy. It's, gonna, it's clearly going to be more serious. Um, there wasn't really like a lot of um, kind of reading material for Daniel Craig. Layer Cake obviously was his, his breakout. Um, he was in Tomb Raider. But you couldn't say like, oh, yeah, Pierce Brosnan did Remington Steel. Very funny, very charming, perfect James Bond. Roger Moore had been in The Saint. Perfect. Let's, let's get him in there. Um, there wasn't that that grounding, that basis for him to be a perfect Bond. Mm -hmm. When you saw him in the tuxedo for the first time in that in that press shot, where he's got the 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 Walter PPK with the silencer on, and his hair is kind of like it's still blonde, but it, they've they've made it look darker. Yeah, I was, like it, it doesn't fit him. He doesn't look like a guy who should be wearing a tuxedo. So I was like a lot of Bond 
super fans. I was skeptical. Um, obviously, I was proven wrong when I saw Casino Royale. And what have been your thoughts or what were your thoughts at the time of kind of going through the journey up through Spectre? Were you content with where the series went with the relaunch? Um, it's a great question because it, 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 it's hard to remember how long he was in the role. Mm, yeah. And the, and the time periods between each movie. Like there were there were periods of time, like after Quantum, you're not sure what's going to happen next. MGM's going through all kinds of problems again. Um, and then we come back for Skyfall. And so there was all of this time between the two halves of the of the of the um the Daniel Craig portion of the franchise, where you've got those first two and the and Casino Royale so great. And we all loved it, and it was a return to the basics of Bond. And Martin Campbell did a fantastic job with that. It's a shame he never got to do another one. And then you get Quantum, which is a weird side tale, almost like a, a short story as opposed to a full-length Bond adventure. Mm -hmm. And it disappointed everybody. I'm still disappointed by it. I've come to like the song. I don't know how you guys feel about the song, but I like the song now. Well, thanks for coming on, Dave. I um, uh, appreciate your time. <laughs> It's grown on me. I don't know. It's kind of catchy. Do, 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 do. It's catchy. Um, it's not my least favorite. It's true. not my least favorite Craig true. song. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. We'll talk about the song later. But um, those two were these two polar opposites of one that everybody loved, one everybody hated. Mm -hmm. you, get, you get Skyfall, which is, I think, still one of the best Bond movies ever made. Um, just a perfect adventure Forget about all the logic problems. Guess what? It's a James Bond movie. If you're watching a James Bond film for logic, I, I ask you to, um, to to go do anything else. Go touch grass if you want to look for <laughs> logic in a Bond movie. For God's sake! Um, and so that was that. It was that high. Like I think the third Bond film is often that actor's best one. If you go back to Connery, mm -hmm. we can debate uh, from Russia with Love. And and it's 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 quality. I think most like old school Bond fans really love that movie. Mm -hmm. But Goldfinger is the is the gold standard, pun intended, of that era because it was a thing that really solidified and crystallized all of the great tropes of the Bond series, uh, the car and Q and and um, you know turning one of the the villainous women by sleeping with them, and then another one, and then you get the final girl at the end. All of that really just comes together in that movie. And then you think about Roger, obviously, Spy Who Loved Me is, is a superb movie yeah. that continues to play. Some of those Roger Moore movies don't age well, uh, <laughs> Live and Let Die being number one. Um, but that movie is so great, and they'd figured out that formula, and they were able to go off and do more. Um, obviously, Dalton never got one. Pierce kind of breaks my theory, because I don't know how you guys feel about World is Not Enough, but I think it's pretty disappointing and kind of long. But for the most part, by that third movie, you've you've shaken it out and you figured out what you want to do with the character and how that portrayal is going to be unique. Um, Skyfall was that for Daniel Craig. So everything that came after is similar to Roger Moore, Sean Connery. It gets bigger and it gets dumber. Mm. And there's not much, there's no way to come back, right? Once you've hit your peak, it's now just how do we make a bigger, stupider movie? How do we blow more things up? How do we like paint uh, more beautiful shots? Um, that's fine. 
but there's once you hit that high, it's really hard, that all-time high, if you will, it's really hard to come back and do it again. And so that's how I, I, I went into No Time to Die feeling like, well, this is going to disappoint me. Right. Okay. So it, it had... I, was, I should say Spectre, I hate. I, yeah, should, yeah. I should say, I feel like I skipped over it because I don't like talking about it. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible movie. I, I can't say Cam and I are particularly big defenders of Spectre either, although I will I will Thank go you. to battle for Quantum a little bit because I think it's trying to do something interesting at least. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice diversion from the norm. It still tries to find ways to, to do the formula, mm-hmm. but it's it's very different and, and has a different energy. Um, but I just think Spectre just fails in, in every way and, and whatever ideas um, that Sam Mendes had, he put into Skyfall. <laughs> Everything else was just like, I don't know what to do. I have no clue. And there was obviously a lot of um, strife within Sony at the mm-hmm. time with the hacks and all the things coming out and the budget was ex- exploding and Daniel clearly was kind of over it at that point. Um, it's it's just a, it's a failed um, opportunity to... Do a thing that Bond fans wanted to happen for decades. Mm. We wanted Spectre to come back. We wanted Blofeld. This is a huge opportunity to give Bond his greatest nemesis again. And it's in every way, it just stubbed its its toe in every situation. I can't I can't find any fault in the argument. And I think, you know, you sort of talk about the expectation of no time to die. It kind of leads us beautifully into let's just talk about it a little bit. I think we should just sort of get it out there in the open. You know, Cam and I briefly discussed earlier our sort of experiences watching it sort of grow and the marketing, everything beforehand. There was a lot of putting off the release date because of COVID and stuff like that. And then it just sort of happening and landing and all of us have to sort of deal with the consequences of the film, especially the choice at the end, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But Dave, I want to throw to you first before sort of Cam and I get into our thoughts now. But looking back at No Time to Die in 2023, now you've had time to sort of digest and ruminate. What do you think of the film now? I've seen it quite a few times. I saw it um, one of the first like special screening press screenings that there was in, in Hollywood was, was this movie. And I was in a mask and I was taking notes and I was like, Oh my God, a James Bond movie. I'm seeing it. It's finally happening. And I was distracted by like, am I going to get sick <laughs> the whole time? Oh, yeah. And I'm yeah, watching yeah. this story about a horrible virus and don't touch me and all that stuff. Uh, so it was a weird experience. And then I watched it again on, um, on Blu-ray at home and my experience was much better than the first time where i was like god this i hate i kind of hate do i hate this i think i might hate this the second time around and then subsequent times later i've come to appreciate it more i think it's a a really good summation of james bond but specifically daniel craig is james bond Mm -hmm. um not to jump too far ahead to the ending but I think it's crucial to my my argument, my theory on the movie, is that it is a a movie about James Bond finally doing one good thing. James Bond is a a, a paid assassin, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is paid to do his job, which is to defend the crown from enemies foreign and domestic. That's his job. And he gets paid very handsomely to do it. And in the process of doing his very well, uh, high-paying job, he gets to drink a lot and smoke. You know, back in the day, he would smoke cigarettes. Um, he gets to have a lot of sex. He gets to kill people. He gets to drive around in fancy cars and be fun and exciting and like 
cool, mm-hmm. right? It's all kind of selfish behavior. There's no, there's no altruism to James Bond. He's not going around giving uh, $20 bills to, to unhoused people or, or like uh, doing like uh, the, the, the uh, telethon on Memorial Day or something. There's no such thing as, as James Bond going out and doing a nice thing for somebody. But that's why we watch them is because it's just this pure like egotistical guy who tells everybody his name all the time going out and destroying stuff. It's hedonism, isn't it? It's, it's hedonistic. It's yeah, it's, it's your, purely. Yeah, it's that lifestyle you kind of want to lead, but none of us could lead it because I think, uh, yeah, we probably end up with venereal diseases and uh, <laughs> cast away by society. Yeah, every great hero in literature, comic books, movies, they tap into something that we all want. Superman is the most moral character of 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 all, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's purely good and he gives of himself. He's like Jesus, right? Or Moses or whatever biblical figure you want to reference. Superman is is pure um unpolluted good. Batman is this character that needs to get revenge. Uh, they feel like the world has slighted them and they want to go out and, and Batman wants to go out and like change things because he feels like he's been wronged. Um, Sherlock Holmes is just really smart. <laughs> you know, he's mm-hmm. like the smartest guy, and you want to be like smart. You know, you want to understand things and be more clever than everybody else. James Bond is the guy who has the most fun, and that's the appeal of it: is watching somebody have a lot of fun and be very cool. Um, but that's there's a dark side to that. A real the reality of that is that that person would be terrible. That person is Andrew Tate or someone of that nature who's like, no, I'm a misogynist and I hate women and this sucks. Like, that's the reality of what James Bond would be um, if you stripped away all of the the cool movie aspects of it. Mm. What these films did, the, the Craig arc, is to take him from this cold, diabolical, selfish person, break him down, open him up through Vesper, right? Vesper is the one who's like finds the humanity inside this guy. And then she turns on him, and then he turns cold again. And so from quantum through to no time to die, he has a hard time trusting. So he, by nature, has a hard time doing the right thing because he feels like he, he will be taken advantage of. So he has to get what he needs. In this movie, finally, James Bond says, I am going to do the right thing. I'm going to sacrifice myself. Not just my money, not just my car, not just my time. I'm going to die. I'm going to die because I want someone else to have a better life, my child. I have something more than just being James Bond. And that's why it had to end this way. As many old school Bond fans say, oh, it sucks because he has a kid and he's not supposed to die. He's supposed to live forever. It's like, well... We're, they're making a movie about a real person who happens to also be a super spy. He has to kind of, he has to answer for his crimes in some way. And his crimes are legion in this series. You know, he's, James Bond can be a cartoon character and that's what's fun about him and that's why I love him. But also the, the, the mission statement of these films was let's do him as a real person. So this, uh, that part of it I really like, and I think that's why the movie has grown on me since I saw it the first time. I, I was just sitting here sort of uh, reveling in, in what you were saying and sort of unpacking it. And I, I, I think I'll jump in myself, Cam, and, as sort of a, as a response to Dave there, because I, I wholeheartedly agree 
with everything you've just said, and I think you've maybe sort of distilled my thoughts into far more eloquent sentences than, than I could have ever come up with. It's interesting. You know, my initial reaction to this film was, uh, oh, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's it's okay. Like, it, it, it fell mid, mid-range. It probably, if you told me to rank the Bond films, it's probably falling at like 15, 17, 18, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. But every time I think about what this film stands for, and what this film was trying to achieve, maybe not successfully at all points, but the narrative is trying to go for something overarching. I think this film pays off Daniel Craig's Bond. About as perfect as you're ever going to get, which is such an ask because endings are the hardest thing to write. Yeah. Uh, We've seen it fail so many times in movies and TVs. Just look at like Rise of Skywalker or something like that. You can really whiff an ending. I think they paid off so well he gives himself over and trusts someone by the end. And trust is a big thing that's played through all of his five films. Who do I trust? You know, Spectre, Mr. White, Vesper Lind, all these people. He, he doesn't even trust uh, Madeline at the start of this film. But the, by the end, he's like, I'm going to trust people like Nomi to take care of it and, and to bring them home. And I'm going to do the right thing. And, it, and I feel like it's magic that they managed to get this in this popcorn film. There's, there's, there's a little bit of depth to it. I don't think Bond has ever had that amount of depth. It's had brushes with it. You talk about, you know, George Lazenby with, with Tracy. I think there's been a bit of depth there. A, a few other times we've seen it, you know, with Isabella Skrupko in GoldenEye. A little bit of depth of the character there as well. But I, I'm, for people who don't think Bond should have died, I think they, I understand that sort of hesitation and that want to be part of that sort of more fun, frolicking era of Bond where there aren't consequences to actions. And that's fine. You've got those first 20 films or 22, if you count the other two, to go back to. That's absolutely fine. But as a piece, as the other end of the equation for the Daniel Craig Bond, I think this is the perfect answer. Yeah, I mean, I think for on my end, it's a movie that I continue to admire in that they had to deal with the ramifications of Spectre, mm-hmm. a movie that just left people so cold. And typically in the past, you know, Bond would be like, well, cut ties with that one. Let's move on. You know, when Honor Majesty's Secret Service didn't grab people the way they wanted, they just basically cut it and went Diamonds Are Forever with Sean Connery and went back to silly. This movie has to actually grapple with Spectre. And the way they do that, so much of the Bond story is this iconography he, he like cloaks himself in, you know, the tuxedo, the drinks, the womanizing, all these various aspects and in the past they didn't really question it a lot it was like that's who this character is and this movie is maybe the most human we've ever seen bond where it's about stripping away all the things we've heard referenced in the past where it is vesper you know getting through to him on a human level when we saw camille saying like the cage or whatever the mask you're wearing i can't get through this you have to deal with this on your own here we're actually seeing him remove it all over the course of the movie and one note i made was it's interesting the way they start this off they make it a very i think interesting decision right off the bat where you have that kind of like slasher movie sequence Mm -hmm. you have a sequence where it's young madeline and like her mother is like an alcoholic you know on the couch like a negligent parent there's never been a moment of reality like this in a bond film ever and it's a small little moment that you kind of don't really acknowledge, but you somehow see over the course of the movie how Fukunaga is both bringing reality and humanity to Bond for the first time really ever, like really cracking open this character, while also honoring kind of the fantasy aspects. You know, I was joking at the intro, Scott, about the Blofeld's bionic eye. Mm. There is all sorts of like spy fi goofiness going on in this movie. 
but never at the expense of character. And they've never tried, I don't think, outside of maybe like the Vesper and Tracy um, key moments, they've never really swung for the emotion the way they have before here. I look at that sequence where he leaves Madeline on the train at the start of the movie. Madeline was not a character I walked out of Spectre caring about at all. And this is a first, you know, like 24 minutes of this movie, the pre-title material. And I don't know why it emotionally gets me every single time. And it's tied to a relationship that did not connect with me over two and a half hours of a previous movie. It's a great point. Yeah. And it's like, it only builds from there. Like the ongoing relationship and the way they tie the villain specifically to Madeline, where he's more interested in Madeline than Bond. Bond just kind of gets involved because of what, you know, Safin is actually up to but really it's driven by madeline and the way that all these other characters bring something out of bond so at the end he's he's stepping back and letting other people take over you know he is basically um it's a little bit like logan uh and i'm sure Mm -hmm. that you know eon famously likes to look at other popular movies for inspiration there's a little bit of dark knight rises in here as well uh with the idea of the icon must die but he somehow lives on um and here where it's like you have this ending where it's like they recognize the icon that is Bond while at the same time saying goodbye to the individual. You know, you don't have Q looking choked up over like, you know, an icon, a completely inhuman icon. He's making a human connection while at the same time it's honoring the myth of James Bond where you have Madeline talking about, you know, telling their daughter this story about a man named James Bond. Like, the myth continues, but they acknowledge the humanity. And it's just a kind of amazing balancing act for me that Fukunaga and his, you know, team of writers managed to strike. And I think, like, it's so easy to pinpoint issues with the movie. And believe me, there's issues with this movie we'll talk about. But in terms of, like, finding a thematic core and exploring it to its fullest in your final Daniel Craig film, this per- this movie's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It was the only way, as you guys said, to end it. It was really the only way. And not taking the easy way out and not ignoring Spectre was a very bold choice. Mm-hmm. Because as as you pointed out, there's nothing that works about Madeline in that movie. Nothing. Um, it's it's just that they had to have somebody with a connection to Bond for him to have as, as a romantic uh, partner and a MacGuffin to chase after in the in the horrific third act of that movie, <laughs> um, I, I can't believe that they did a, a a hall of shame for him to walk through. Remember all these people, James? Oh, remember? Like, yeah, yeah, he remembers. He doesn't remember Green though. Green isn't there. <laughs> no, Dominic Dominic Green is long gone. He's whatever is Roman Polanski is doing. Dominic Green is doing right now because they're the same guy. Um, it was just such a, a miscalculation, and I think they saw that as the ending. It is weird in this movie that the villain is not Blofeld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't really think Bond ever gets any kind of cathartic victory over Blofeld. Even in the end of Spectre, you don't really feel like he won, because I'm sure they intended to bring him back in this one, no matter what. Um so Safin is like a disappointment. I think that's one of the things, one of the criticisms I have of the movie is that the idea of the villain is let's do a James Bond villain. They've, they're ugly and creepy and vaguely European. <laughs> and we'll get Rami Malek to do it because he's creepy looking. That wasn't enough for the story that they wanted to tell. I think the, the gymnastics that they got to, to get 
Madeline involved and to make her so important um, doesn't fully work because you're 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 already working from behind with the fact that people don't care about Madeline. Mm. Bond cares about her, and you're not sure why. Why does he like her so much compared to all of the other women that he slept with in the last three movies? It's not clear, but it, it you kind of get it because like he's obviously attracted to women who were broken or um, or um, emotionally stunted in the ways that he is. That they have something in common. They're both like these these they're drawn to the flame of, of dysfunction. But Leah Sadu is not an exciting actor. Like she's very she's so icy and so reserved that you never feel the passion that you want from a bond relationship. The sex appeal. I mean, that's that's why I love Onatop so much. Like <laughs> from the moment that they meet uh at the Baccarat table in Goldeneye, you're like, I want to see them have sex. Let's have them have sex at some point, right? They're going to have sex, yeah? But that just, you don't care about Madeline in that way. That's missing from the whole thing. Um, and so this movie suffers from the fact that they had all of these things that they had to do, and they couldn't use certain certain characters in the way that maybe they should have. Maybe they should have had Blofeld be the villain, because they're setting that up, right? Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the movie, it's like, oh, he's he's doing everything, and there's a specter... Uh, card and in, in, in the opening credit sequence or the pre credits title uh, pre credit sequence, but then they kill him off and we move on and Saffin's now the villain. It should have been a bit more satisfying. It should have been something where Blofeld and Bond could finally have that tete a tete that they sort of have. You know the dialogue that they have in the jail cell um, is close to where they should have ended, but they they couldn't because it that the moment had passed. They had they had gone so far in the direction of bad <laughs> with Blofeld that you can't really dust him off and bring him back because the audience is like, oh, this guy again. I hated that movie. He's going to talk about meteors again. I don't want to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop it. Well, I appreciated, though, that like when they bring Blofeld in, first off, amazing entrance. Uh, I think Blofeld gets one of the great movie entrances in this film for these Bond films. But, like... Um, I appreciated that ultimately they gave Blofeld kind of like a con in Star Trek II moment where he goes to his death thinking he succeeded. Yeah. He feels like he took everything away from Bond and dies after he's poisoned. And Bond doesn't get any sort of satisfaction at the death of Blofeld. It happens by accident. He has no awareness of what happened. And he just has to kind of like walk away and <laughs> shake that one off. There's never any like resolution there. So I kind of appreciate that they gave that to Blofeld. But, like, I, I do agree it's the case where <sighs> Safin is, like, kind of upset in terms of his function in the movie because you're focusing on Blofeld for so much of it. And when it's a final film, you want to have... There's a lot of moving parts here. A lot that they have to pull off. And I think, like, having one specific known in here, like a, a Blofeld as your villain you can focus on, would make other things easier than kind of building up Blofeld and then building up another villain in the second half of the movie. I mean, I I want to see more of Spectre and their ability to control sheep in Italy. That that's <laughs> really what I want to know more about. I wish we'd see crop that. futures and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, really important. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's the sort of nitty gritty I need. Uh, uh, <laughs> with the Saffin thing, and we'll get to dislikes in a bit. But like the thing with Saffin for me was always like, that's the guy that killed Bond. Like, yeah, he was the one that did it. Of all the people that could have done it. 
but we'll leave that for now. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting. Much like the spy game requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, remember when Clive Owen seemed like a James Bond frontrunner? Well, it didn't come to be, but let's look at his 2006 triumph. And I'm talking, of course, about the sci-fi masterpiece, Children of Men. Get ready for some one-take wonders, people. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Let's talk about things that we did like. Let's go through the... I've got a long list of things I like about this film. Dave, I'll throw it to you first. Something you want to point out that you really like about this film. I love all the Felix Leiter stuff. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think that Felix has always been subjugated in the franchise. You know, famously, there are like 12 Felix Leiters. <laughs> There's like more Felix Leiters than Bonds. Um, that's probably not true. Don't fact check me. But there's a lot of Felix lighters, and it's always like a one-off. And like Jack Lord was was Felix, and um, you know, there's just tons of them out there that that played the role, and they never really had the friendship that you would want. Mm-hmm. The friendship that was established in the novels, like that was an important relationship. I don't even know if they fully got there in these movies. I, one of the the criticisms of this material is we didn't really get to see them have adventures and, and be friends. Like, well, yeah, we kind of did. You know, they 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 famously are in Casino Royale together and, and Felix is really important in that movie. Uh, he's pretty important in Quantum. Uh, so there's stuff, there's enough there. But Jeffrey Wright is just so appealing and they have a, a friendship chemistry that that's really, really, um, it feels real. You know, it feels, feels authentic. It feels uh, like they had been off on adventures for a long time because Jeffrey Wright is just such a great actor and he 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 acts like an old baseball glove like he's been around he's seen some stuff and you can you can see that from his his performance from his eyes um, there's a, there's a there's a world wariness to him even in Casino Royale when he's years younger so I love that part of it um, I, I Anna de Armas is great I'll say mm-hmm. that I will say that she's a lot of fun it doesn't amount to a whole hell of a lot um but it's a great sequence it's the most bond sequence of the entire film it has it has all the little elements and that's great um but it just doesn't mean anything so uh, this it's kind of like i liked it but also i wish it it had more substance to it it's interesting that you point those two things out because they are inherently connected in this film uh, as far as i'm aware and cam you can correct me and dave you can correct me as well at one point the cuba sequence was bond and felix yeah on a mission yeah and then it was rewritten when they got Anna for the film. Um, and and to, the, to your point about Felix, I completely agree. I love uh, Lighter in the Craig era, if you want to call it that. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. You look at like all of the pre- the previous Felix Lighters. We've had one guy who came back twice. But it's it's been a lot of like 
they've been telling us that they're good friends and not showing us how good of friends they are, which is that sort of cardinal sin of, you know, show, don't tell. Whereas you get a sense of the relationship building over the five films because you get the same actor, uh, repeat performance, and you have a fantastic actor like Jeffrey Wright. Uh, A wonderful thing to point out. And I think I I, I like, and and maybe this is sort of a a meta-textual sort of like of this film, but I like the fact that it cleans the slate. It wipes, it just throws everything off the table. So when we get Bond come back, whatever this new iteration will be in the future, we haven't got to worry about, oh, I wonder if Christoph Waltz is coming back as Blofeld. I wonder if... Jeffrey Wright's going to play Felix Leiter. They're all dead. We're all gone. Uh, but they all get a nice sort of sign-off. Like a Star Trek Six sign the screen as the credits roll. We all get that little moment in the sun. And I like that he got to sort of end his story, which no other Felix has ever had the opportunity to do. He's the greatest Felix Leiter of all time. Not a hot take. Um, <laughs> what about Keck Linder? <laughs> the great Keck Linder? No? <laughs> no. It was a D- David Hedison was... He's um, great. Was it was Felix in License to Kill? Mm, yeah. yeah, he was. He was. He was very good. Um, it was weird that he was so much older than <laughs> Timothy Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> but I get why they like. Let's bring him. Ba- let's bring one of them back, and then maybe it'll work better. No, it didn't work better. Um, I Anna de Armas in the movie is there for the sex appeal. It this is a film that didn't have any of it until she shows up. Mm-hmm. It's a Bond movie. You want to have him flirting with someone and they subvert it very well. And I, I, I kind of assume that that Phoebe Waller-Bridge had some some part to play in, in, in making that change. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, she played she played a big role in making the Paloma addition uh, a much more fleshed out sequence. And yeah, that character was originally going to be a little bit of more of just a kind of generic contact. Yeah, it, it, it feels like the final flourish of James Bond. Like the final, like okay, you, we're gonna we're gonna pack all that stuff in there that you like. The tuxedo, he's gonna have a drink. Like all of this, the the fun uh, elements of Bond are going to be crammed into this moment. Uh, it, it's meta in a lot of ways, uh, but it's also satisfying because you needed a jolt in that middle part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do wish that she was around more, and I, I almost feel like and this will we'll talk about this more in the things we don't like. I do kind of wish that the new 007 and Paloma were one character. Mm, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned fun, and I think that's a key element that all of this material, both with Paloma and Felix, introduces. Because I think they know, like, we have a pretty heavy back half of this movie. Mm. We have to be paying off big emotions. Safin is not a fun character, and so... They know going in. What are you talking about? He's a wacky guy. (laughs) Look at his mask. What a fun guy to be around. (laughs) They know that back half is going to be pretty kind of dark. And so they are having as much fun as they can. And one of my favorite things with Bond movies is like the little diversions. Mm -hmm. They're what makes like Bond movies special to me. I can watch streamlined action movies, you know, that any studio puts out. But the Eon company has always made these kind of odd action adventure films in these bond movies that have weird little you know diversions or little additions that you're like why would they put that in the movie like what a strange thing to add i want i want to i want to bring up one of my favorites of that genre of of bond scene is when they go to venice in moonraker yep and of course there's the gondola chase Mm. and then there's the the double take with the pigeon Mm -hmm. i can't get enough of that part of it or spy who loved me the all the stuff with the pyramids, that kind of like cat and mouse between Bond and Jaws in the pyramids and the way the lights go up and down. And it's like this is this is almost like a little mini movie. And I felt 
that, as you said, that's kind of like what this was. It was like a little mini movie in the middle of the movie that you could turn on and just watch that part. Mm -hmm. I could just watch the Venice sequence of, of Moonraker and then turn it off and be fine. I, I feel that same way with, with the Paloma sequence in No Time to Die. I was genuinely hoping you would say Mrs. Bell. Oh, <laughs> what a weird little Sorry. diversion that was. But uh, yeah. Oh, well. Sorry. I, I wanted some Mrs. Bell on the show. Uh, I got it. So there you go. But no thinking team of studio execs would greenlight the Mrs. Bell sequence. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but they should. But they should. <laughs> or or allow that line from Blofeld in Free Eyes Only where he talks about buying Bond a delicatessen in stainless steel. Like moments like that, they can only come from Eon. And when I see have that bit of the Cuba sequence where they're, you know, all the action is incredibly well shot. You can see kind of the John Wick influence going on with the choreography here. Mm. But like the moment where Bond and Paloma take a shot together and then continue on with the action. That's the sort of moment that I feel like Eon injects into these movies that make them feel so cool. But another, you know, filmmaker or studio, you know, uh, headed project wouldn't necessarily do that. They'd be thinking more about we've got to have momentum. This has nothing to do with what's going on with the story or the plot. Why are we doing this? When he when Bond falls through this the ceiling the roof of the train in Skyfall and doesn't break a sweat and then does he fixes his cuffling mm, yeah that is just like magic that's James Bond if if I had to show someone thirty seconds of a James Bond movie to say this is why you should like this character I would show them that yeah and those are the things that Eon does so well because Barbara Broccoli and Michael G Wilson understand why we love the character. What is special about him? And no matter what, I could watch any James Bond movie, the good ones, the great ones, the terrible ones, and I will have a good time mm -hmm. because they take the, take the moment and, and, and utilize the moment and give you that, those little, little things, those little nuggets of joy whenever they can. And you look at the pre-title sequence, you know, the two halves of it, basically the, the slasher sequence with Safin stalking Madeline. I'm not sure I've ever understood the age difference between those two characters uh, based off that sequence. <laughs> yeah, me neither. It's a little strange, but nonetheless, incredibly creepy and effective. And then you go right into the sequence of Bond and Madeline basically on vacation and then tying into all of these Spectre elements. Both incredibly well shot, feel very different. Like you were saying, you know, about the, um, you know, the uh, Venice sequence in Moonraker, you could watch either sequence there of those two halves of the opening sequence. And it's like, this is like its own little mini movie. And I love the way that Fukunaga makes them all feel very different, have a different energy and vibe, but they feel cohesive with the whole of what No Time to Die is. Absolutely. And I think like one of the things I was going to bring up in terms of likes, I won't use it as mine, but I'll use it to sort of tie this together in a sense. It's also just the visual look of the film. I think from a cinematography standpoint, I think this is one of the most dynamic of Craig's films. You look at some of the murky stuff from Spectre, which I cannot forgive. I'm sorry. That sort of yellow tone to that whole film. This looks gorgeous from like even the Cuba uh, sequence is on a set, mm -hmm. but it still looks amazing. Or, you know, I think like it's in Sweden or Switzerland at one point that looks great with that part. And you've got um, all the stuff in the beginning of the, of the film as well. But yeah, wonderful stuff. But Cam, for you, what, what sort of like do you want to point out? Well, I was going to mention with the cinematography, the uh, sequence of them breaking into the top secret, um, you know, biotech lab. Sure. Going into that window where the camera is rotating around them as they go through the window is incredible. Like, I love that kind of experimentation in a Bond film. Let's see more of that in the future. Um, as for me, like, I think to me, 
you know, we've talked about how, like, say, Sappin is kind of a, a, a bit of an issue, but I think the supporting cast of this movie is so important and I think incredibly well balanced. And that was not something I said about Spectre, nope. where it felt like that whole subplot with C and then the Bond Scooby gang pursuing him just dragged the pace and energy of the movie down. And I think here they found perfect ways to work each of the supporting cast in without overriding the movie. Like, they all get emotional moments because of the death of Bond. You know, I mentioned that amazing Q moment on the plane. Mm -hmm. But the way they have, you know, Ray Fiennes M, somewhat, uh, you know, not guilty, but uh, part of the problem with what has happened with this Hercules project and how it has gotten out. And I mean, that was a criticism that was quite common with the Judy Dench M, which was that the first time we got like a female M, suddenly there was all these issues coming out of MI6 that were happening on her watch. And I'm glad that I think they recognized that and gave this M an issue of his own to grapple with. And the way that they kind of take that known universe of Bond with Monty Penny as well, and make it all feel cohesive with the larger story they're telling about Bond, and introduce, I think, the uh, Lashana Lynch as the new 007 is fantastic mm -hmm. and a character who's i think has a lot of like funny little quippy humor um, when she's first meeting bond i like the way she carries through the film is very capable as an action hero when you get to that end storming of the base but also the idea that like i don't think that she's going to headline the future of james bond movies but within the universe of this specific movie you could understand how this character would continue on as the 00 seven working under m with this bond fading out and they'd always said up front 007s have a low life expectancy uh that was made clear in um casino royale and the idea that there would be one taking over for bond a certain place this was built in for movie one and i think she's a very appropriate casting choice and someone who i could totally buy taking over that role yeah i'm glad you brought up m in this movie because for the most part the bond films have always been very mistrustful of bureaucracy and government yeah even though bond is fighting for the government he sort of he scoffs it at being told what to do um he's an independent thinker <laughs> to use the modern parlance um but it gets especially acute in these movies um going back to quantum and then skyfall and them trying to like get him off the uh, out of MI6 and like, is he ready? Can he do this? All the psychological evaluation stuff. Um, and then in Spectre, the idea that their plan to um, observe everyone is so insidious. That is doubled down on in this one with the idea of the virus. Like, the government is constantly doing these things in these movies mm -hmm. that are morally questionable. And Bond questions the morality of the things that are happening, that he, the things that he is told to do. In, in the classic movies, it was more like, Bond, you're a loose cannon. And he's like, yes, of course I am. I'm going to go off and do the thing that I want to do, regardless of what M says. This is more like, oh, the government is actually fundamentally broken. And M represents that, I think, through Ray Fiennes more so than, than Judy Dench, who was a mother figure for Bond. Instead, now M is this kind of go-between between the government and the arm of the government, 
the the hands of the government, the the thing that goes out and does the government's will. And I think that's really interesting. And Ray Fiennes was a wonderful choice for that. Could have been a Bond his, himself many years ago. And he has that gravitas that really plays well off of, of Bond's more kind of um, dark, nihilistic, cynical nature. I I agree with everything you were saying, Cam. And I think you're talking about sort of Lashana Lynch and the, and the 007 of it all. I did have some issues with her character constantly obsessed with what double O number Bond was when he was reinstated. Like, right? There was I, I, I understood that she was very protective of her status, and I, I totally understand that because she earned that, and she feels you know pride in being double O seven. I, I didn't know why she was that obsessed with it. I would have got the feeling that she didn't particularly care. She was just she knew she was double O seven. She felt confident in that. But I'm glad that we took the opportunity to say look 007 is a code and it goes to the most deserving person and this is now the most deserving agent hello nomi and i think it i think it's a great way to in the head canon of what happens post this film as she's 007 that's the perfect way of getting sort of the the female james bond that we never had yeah there's there's a curious thing these movies sometimes do which is take into account the audience's understanding of the myth mm and making that textual instead of, you know, something that we just accept. Uh, and I think those moments where she's like, what's his, what's his number? What's his number? Um, is something that they know the audience is thinking. Mm. They know the audience is like, well, he's 007, right? She's not. Or like, I'm so excited that she's 007 because finally we have a female 007, whatever. None of that matters in the context of the film. That is all what they think the audience is, is considering as they're watching the movie. No one's ever said 007 was the most important designation within MI6. No one's ever said, oh, this is the best one, or this is the one that has the most um, authority or is the most prestigious. It's because we know that James Bond is 007, and we love James Bond, the character. Uh, so those things always kind of rankled me. I was always like, well, why are they debating this? This, <laughs> is, this is just like, you're doing this for Twitter. Mm. You're not doing this for the movie's sake. That is true. Yeah, it's a little bit of the uh, Star Trek uh, Into Darkness con stuff, right? Oh boy, don't even get me started on that. I rewatched that movie recently, and it's it's funny how how similar it is to Spectre in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and how disappointing it is because of the irrational need to hide the name of the villain. Who the, the name of the villain only matters to us. Yeah. Blofeld, when he says, my name's Blofeld now, what's Bond supposed to say? Like, oh, I know, Blofeld, like the guy in the other movies. Now, he can't say that. (laughs) Or like with with Kirk and Khan. Why does he care what the guy's name is? It only matters because they shot that scene with, with old Spock after the fact to make it clear why it mattered that he was Khan. It's just like the storytelling 101. It's absurd that they either of those movies got to that point with that that red herring i i think we could be here for another hour if we start uh, dissecting into darkness because i have a lot to say <laughs> about that film too i i want to talk about two likes that we haven't really mentioned and i think they're both quite important because they're my thoughts and as such they are um firstly it's daniel craig it's his fifth film and i think he is still wonderful in the role i think he's actually got better at it over time i i think any of my problems i've had with specter with quantum of solace have not been to do with Daniel Craig's performance. He knows his assignment and he is delivering it as well as could be asked for, really. A a, a new age Bond 
that has emotion and there are consequences to his actions. Daniel Craig is embodying this version of Bond. It is like the Timothy Dalton version turned up to 11. It is, you know, the real world equivalent of what James Bond, I suppose, would be. And I just love Daniel Craig's performance in this. He gets to show a lot of emotion that he sort of, he shows us in Casino. He shuts down for a while, comes back with this. And just seeing that sort of heartbreak towards the end as he knows what's happening to him. I don't know about you guys, where you stand on this sort of thing, but when he finally climbs the top of that ladder and he says, you know, you have all the time in the world and it has she has his, your eyes. And I, I get teary every time I watch that scene. And that is all from Daniel's face. Yeah, I mean, I love it too. I, I think he's easily the best actor to ever play the role. Yeah. It's it's not even close. Like, there are great Bonds, but there are rarely great Bonds who are also great actors. Timothy Dalton, great actor. Debatable how great of a Bond he was. Mm-hmm. But he was never given the material to play the character he probably wanted to play. As we all know, Living Daylights was written for a generic James Bond that was kind of Roger Moore, but they didn't yep. know who it was going to be. They wanted Pierce Brosnan, and he couldn't do it. So then they get Dalton, and it's just a, a hodgepodge of tones, and it's not really cohesive. And there's a lot of great stuff in that movie. I love the the ice chase. I love all of the John Barry music. I think it's got a lot to, 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 to enjoy, but it never comes together. And then License to Kill is like, well, we've got this guy, Timothy Dalton, and you know what's popular right now is Lethal Weapon. <laughs> so what if we gave <laughs> Timothy Dalton the script for a Lethal Weapon movie and said, go out and make a James Bond film? That it was so disappointing to see how he was not serviced by the material at the time, and the and the the franchise needed to get away from all of the tropes that they had developed through the Roger Moore movies. But what they did was they just found a bunch of other tropes from other movies, and they tried to shoehorn James Bond into it. What's so great about Daniel Craig as James Bond is it wasn't about let's find a new radical way to make a James Bond movie. It was, let's make a James Bond movie, but what if he was a real person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they tried to make Timothy Dalton James Bond and not let him play a real person. Daniel Craig got to do all the things that Timothy Dalton never got to do. And he had the chops and the, and the, the muscle in, in Hollywood once Casino became a huge hit, once Skyfall became an even huger hit, to be able to direct the franchise the way he wanted it to go. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how much of the Danny Boyle issue was with Daniel. I think Danny Boyle didn't ended up not wanting to to kill Bond off, and that was the big like divergence. Is Daniel Craig really wanted to kill Bond, and I think Daniel Danny Boyle didn't. But please correct me if I'm wrong. the The point is like he had the juice to dictate to Eon how they were going to do these movies, and so everything in these movies is tailor-made to his performance, to his version of the character. And it's hard to, to think back to 2002 and think about, is there a new way to do this? I think a lot of people probably thought, like, we've seen it all with this, mm-hmm. this franchise. There's nothing left. Yeah. And Daniel Craig found, a, found a nugget of an idea. Going back, I mean, not him specifically deciding to do Casino Royale, but, like, when he got the material, you go back to the Fleming of it all and you go back to the original conception of it and create a a character that has all the bells and whistles but it's its own thing like i don't think he looked at sean connery and said i'm going to do it like that 
or Pierce or Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton or George Lazenby. I think he just said, who, who is this person? And that is why these moments pay off so well in the movie. Well, it felt like Eon found an artistic partner in Craig mm-hmm. that I yeah. don't think... I mean, some of the other actors may have been open to it, but Eon at that point wasn't as much. It was more of a closed, like, look, you follow these scripts and just do what we'd ask. Whereas it feels like with Craig, they actively wanted a collaborator. And also, it was yeah. someone who wasn't going to keep making these movies if he was bored. Yep. You know, you never got... When you look at those Connery ones, when you get towards the end, or, you know, Roger Moore in View to a Kill... Uh, they're not giving their best performances and they're also not being given really anything new to do. They're just kind of doing the greatest hits with less and less energy. Whereas I look at like Craig Spectre's my least favorite of his movies, but I think he's pretty good in that movie. Mm -hmm. He hits all the moments that he needs to hit. And I think when you kind of track the progress of the character over these five movies, it's a pretty fantastic work. And it feels cohesive, and I buy the journey of this character. And, and I know a lot of people have an issue with maybe how serious this movie is, or how it kind of falls into this more like sweeping romanticism that is pretty Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I think there's a reason that Honor Majesty's elements are all over this movie. Yep. They are trying to do that balance of kind of like the serious sweeping kind of drama with kind of cartoony stuff yeah uh, you know with bionic eyes and all that sort of stuff the way that in honor majesties you've got like hypnosis tapes about chicken and things like that um and you know the angels of death this movie to me just pulls it off and i think like craig is so crucial in you know when you look at all five movies he made they all have pretty different visions because you have directors like sam endes fukunaga um you know right down the line it's a different kind of take on the material but he's like consistent from movie to movie to movie really holding it all together yeah it's uh it's amazing that we had someone who had such a handle on what he wanted to do with the character and he got that power to be able to bring it to life because pierce had the same sort of thing he knew what he wanted his bond to be but he didn't have that power to do it and so i think we ended up with dying another day in the end um the only other thing I wanted to call out in terms of likes and before I move on to dislikes and take us over there is just the action of this film. I think it, it needs a little a bit of a tip of the hat because you've got straight right from the start, the Matera sort of sequence driving around there, very visceral Daniel Craig taking on Spectre driving a motorcycle through the streets and he gets a DB5, shoots the place up. It looks spectacular. You've got... And it's emotion driven. Yeah. It's driven by the actual relationship between the characters mm-hmm. and that's not something that typically happens in Bond films. We've got that moment where like they're just sat there, uh, Madeline and Bond inside the DB5 and they're, they're bringing the gun up and just shooting the point blank range at this bulletproof glass and you just feel that thud, that pressure in the in, in the in the driving it's sort of inside the car and you it just it's so visceral i love that sequence and uh, there's a lot of other ones the sort of attacking of safin's island and sort of him uh, 007 and, and and bond sort of going through that the staircase ascent later on just daniel craig it almost filmed like a one shot in its own little way it's got that kind of feel to it again very john wick or born like in its own sort of way but it's got its bond spin on it with like the bionic eye joke and it really blew his mind or whatever it was with the the, the magnetism one of the funniest moments <laughs> yeah and you don't get to see daniel craig make those sort of jokes he's finally sort of loosened up a little bit and is able to do that side of him too which is wonderful to see a lot of praise for that but we all cry on our birthdays folks mm-hmm. let's talk about dislikes I'm going to throw it to you, Dave. Give us a dislike. 
<sighs> it's hard to pick just one. Roll up. Because there are things to not like about this movie. I mean, I honestly don't really enjoy Billy Magnuson in this movie. Mm, okay. I get what they were going for. Oh, let's have this kind of like fanboy kind of like nerd. Um, but then him being a villain and like he's unhinged in a way that's kind of stupid. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like it's almost too campy. It's like he's he's in a different James Bond movie. He's smiling all the time like he's like he's like a, a Seventh Day Adventist going door to door trying to hand out pamphlets. And uh, it's just they have a hard time finding these secondary villains. Um, in Spectre, it was oh boy, who Mr. was Hanks. that? Andrew? Oh, Andrew Scott. No, 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 not Andrew even Scott. Andrew Scott as mm. C. Like, oh, he's I love Andrew Scott as an actor. He's great in Fleabag. He's great in everything, but he's playing kind of a perfunctory sort of bureaucratic bad guy that. Obviously, he's not going to have a fight with James Bond or anything. And the fight with Billy Magnuson in, in in Bond is fine, but I just don't buy it in the way... Like, the Hinks stuff in Spectre works because Dave Bautista is a, a gigantic man. Yeah. And he has a certain amount of charisma. Yep. Obviously, we don't really get to the heights of a Red Grant uh, or even a Mayday in any of these movies. I don't think there's a great henchman in any of these films. And I don't know why there isn't that that body man or woman character uh, that is so such an effective role in all of the other Bond uh, series. It just it it does it doesn't work for me. Um, and I also didn't love 007, but I feel like we've talked about her enough. I just felt like it was kind of not a necessary character. Mm. It, she didn't have enough to do, and I think you could have you could have melded her and Paloma into one character that would have more resonance with Bond or for Bond as the movie went on. I think with like the henchmen, this movie has multiple and they all feel like they are just deprived of like a moment or two of fully clicking. Cause when like Billy Magnuson, I think I like him a little more. I like his kind of uh, a <laughs> sniveling death with the free rise only carving, you know, stomp down on top of him. But, like, sure. you know, you've got David Denchik as Valdo, the scientist, who is very much the Boris of this movie. Yeah. And it's like, he is probably the most prominent, if you want to call him, like, a Bond henchman <laughs> yeah. uh, villain. He's probably the most prominent. You've got um, also um, Primo, played by Dali Bensala, who, again, you've got the eye. And I like that they work the uh, bionic eye into that character for, like, practical reasons within the story. It's not just, like... Oh, he's got metal teeth. Oh, how come? Uh, never mind. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> eye is actually serving a function throughout, tying him to Blofeld. Yeah. So I like that addition, but he also feels like he's robbed of like a moment or two to really connect. He has, it's, you know, I'm not going to put him on the level of like, you know, Diamond Face in Die Another Day, but it's a similar thing where it's like a fun kind of facial gimmick, but there's not a lot of character there. So it's like when I'm left with this group, I like them all mm. in the movie. I like that there's at least bursts of little energy with each of them. They don't feel fully generic, but none of them are ascending to that next tier of like one of the like great henchmen of the series. There's no Necros in this. Necros to me is like the last great henchman in a bond. Well, no, because Onatop is technically a henchman, but Necros boring in Living Daylights visually. He doesn't have funny teeth. 
He doesn't have diamonds in his face. He doesn't have a, a, a robotic eye. But the physicality is similar to Red Grant in from Russia with Love. That it's it's so intimidating, and they take the time to show you how powerful and dangerous Necros is in that scene where he pretends to be a a, a mailman, a mailman, a milkman. Yeah. Like you get that sense that he could really hurt James Bond, and it plays through all the way to the end when they're Afga- in in Afghanistan on the plane. We don't really get that sense with any of these people that they're truly dangerous. So you've got three of them, but you don't really believe it in the way that you should believe that they can really hurt Bond. That's why you have to have a scene where Anatop kills that guy with her thighs. Right. You realize she's unhinged and dangerous. And that has to be a scene where James Bond is not around. But he's in every scene, practically. <laughs> and that means you can't see how dangerous these people are. Uh, and that is, is such an important scene in, in, in any Bond film, is establishing the danger of the henchman. It's a little bit like um, Iron Man 2 syndrome, where it's like, well, what's the greatest threat to Tony Stark? What about an inferior inventor and an inferior weapons salesman? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I don't know if those are yeah. the greatest threats. Whereas, like, here, it's kind of the same thing where you set up, like, Primo and you set up Logan Ash, but, like, two people that can very easily be taken out by Bond. You have Primo getting, like, you know, <laughs> stomped by Bond right in the opening title sequence. So you're never, like... This guy's dangerous. Like, look out. At least yep. with Hinks, there is a sense, like, he could crush mm. Bond, and you have that moment of him killing the Spectre member with his, like, fingernails. And you're like, this guy is deadly. No yep. one in this movie, I don't think there's a single villain in this movie that has any sort of moment like that where you go, they seem dangerous. And Safin is not that character for sure. Nope. No, it's kind of missing that sort of uh, sense of dread for Bond, in a sense. Like a physical presence against him yeah yeah you're right actually I, I was trying to think of anyone that made any sort of impact in that sense but no all of the threats are this nanobot virus not smart blood that's different but the nanobot stuff is is really the foreboding threat but, but that's not got a physical presence so we can't really talk about it i want to pass to you cam for a dislike i think for me let's break down the saf and stuff uh sure i struggle with the character i don't necessarily hate what he's doing i think like there's something very interesting about having a villain who is connected to you know the bond girl of the movie and the idea that Mm -hmm. this you know comes from her childhood and it's someone who's kind of been with her over the course of life and he has this whole like kind of like ownership thing like we have a connection and i am your protector all stemming from you know seeing the look in her eyes as a child i think that's actually kind of compelling psychologically for the character and the way that it weighs on madeline and allows an insight into her character that you typically don't get with these movies but like Safin, i don't know what his motivation is and i struggle with this and so this was something i brought up when we uh you know reviewed the movie when we first saw it um and I still don't really know. And so I was, when I made my notes last night, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pull up like the, uh, you know, the Bond wiki and read about Safin. Mm. And they couldn't really break it down either in a satisfying way. It was kind of like, well, he is pretending to be a mirror of Bond, but he's not really, <laughs> he's like, what does Safin want? The idea of someone who had his family wiped out and wants to, create this weapon that can target whoever he wants if you tell me that he wants to be as he said an invisible god who is going to dictate who dies then i go this makes sense to me it's someone trying to control 
a random violence that happened to him. And yes, you can make him obviously someone who wants to basically take over the world, which this is the first time we've really gotten that in the Craig era, kind of the, the Bond villain that wants to do that. But then he's also selling all this tech off to these randomly defined ships that are pulling up to his island. So I'm like, well, now he's sure. giving up all control of this weapon because he's selling it to random people who are going to use it for God knows what and could... Why could just kill him. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Like, it could kill anyone. So going off genetic markers and all that sort of stuff, it could knock out him or anyone he works with. So I don't understand what he wants necessarily. And I think that's a problem when you're trying to create this, like, thematic completion with his character at the end where he's talking about, like, killers and you know, accusing Madeline of loving killers and all of this sort of stuff. It's like, I need a, a clearer line to follow with this character. Yeah, he's supposed to be a dark mirror for Bond, which I think you mentioned. Yeah. And they often fail trying to do that. Um, I don't think it works with Sean Bean and Goldeneye as much as I like that movie. Mm. It's like, uh, you're telling me a lot that he's an evil James Bond uh, I think that's true of Die Another Day as well. Um, don't even ask me what the name of that character is, because I will, I will fail to remember what um, oh, the bad guy is in that. What Gustav Graves? Gustav Graves. Thank you. I almost said uh, Walter White because I knew because <laughs> I knew it was an alliteration, and he's white. He's a white guy, but he's actually Korean. Um, all those characters never really click. Because James Bond himself is kind of problematic. He's already on the edge. Uh, Safin being a character looking for revenge says to me their aim was, well, James Bond became a professional murderer because of his trauma related to his parents dying. He's Batman. Mm. and there's a dark side to that in the way that in The Dark Knight, Batman and Harvey Dent are kind of similar sides of the same coin uh, to, to, to try to be funny there with the coin reference. I was going to say. Mm. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. <laughs> I, was, I knew what I was saying. It, just, it never works because you don't take the time to explain it because you're so busy trying to explain the mechanics of what their plan is. His plan was actually too complicated. Mm. It's all of this like, bioweapon stuff which one plays differently in post-covid but also is is like it's as you guys said not tangible it's if it's this thing that we're told is scary and can kill anybody but it's invisible so it's this threat they have to explain all the time and say how scary it is instead of seeing it be scary and it just doesn't he he doesn't connect Rami Malek does a perfectly fine job mumbling his way through the movie, mm -hmm. but yeah. he's not a defined character. And again, it should have been Blofeld. It should have been two, uh, these two characters who have something at stake uh, when they when they go up against each other. Especially when you spend the last film building that rivalry between them, having Bond like disfigure Blofeld and give him his trademark cut eye. Like you've done a lot to set up a revenge story, and yet you just sort of just brush Blofeld off the table yep. which is a, a very strange choice and like uh, they were uh, when they were doing the sort of behind the scenes for this film they were really proud of themselves that they had uh, 
Rami Malik and Daniel Craig worked out a couple of scenes between them and ad-libbed some stuff and, you know, tried to mess around with something. And that's that sort of scene where Daniel Craig is sort of bowing to Safin. Yeah. And that scene just goes on far too long. They're waffling around. They're not really sure what they're talking about. It's all of this sort of heady sentences that say nothing at all. And I think that really just sort of summarizes Safin for me. It's a it's a idea that is not really fleshed out. Well, that's the dark side of giving your star a lot of power. Mm. On one level, they have the ability to dictate uh, the terms of engagement. They have input that's often good. Well, sometimes the input comes in and it's bad. And improving the final scenes, the climactic moments of that movie is a horrible idea. Because you got to keep moving. It's the end of the movie. You can't just keep talking. Like, monologues are not James Bond's uh, best uh, area mm. of expertise, the films. Like, we love the villain monologues, but then they have to be rebutted by James Bond making a joke or someone getting shot. Yeah. Like, the monologues are about the, the setup and the punchline, the tension and the release. And when it's just two people kind of monologuing at each other with no rhyme or reason and it not going anywhere, and you know where the ending is going, we need to get him up the, the stairs, and then he needs to get blown up by the missiles. What are you doing? All this, all this material should have been explained, clarified, at the beginning of the movie, not at the end. That's the worst time to be trying to make thematic hay in a, in a film, is at the end. No, I couldn't agree more. I, uh, I I think it's a shame because of all the people that actually finally offed James Bond, it's it's Safin. And uh, I disagree. Not... I disagree that he killed James Bond. James Bond essentially sacrificed himself. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can't argue with that. That's true. He could have. He could have tried to get away. Yeah. He decided to give himself up. He could. He probably could have got away from that blast if he wanted to. He told them to open fire. And I actually have another frustration with Safin, which is like the Chekhov's poison garden. You do not repeatedly tell me about this poison garden. Have a scene of him showing someone around the poison garden and then do nothing with it. That's really frustrating. Yeah. yeah. A couple guys fell in that pool of, of whatever it was. Chemicals. Yeah. It, was, it looked awesome. I, I, love sure. the, I love the production design of this movie. I think it's the best production design of all five. Um, it feels like very Ken Adam and futuristic, but retro. Uh, I thought it was fantastic, but a, a lot of it amounted to nothing, which is often what happens. Like, what was the point of the um, eco hotel other than to blow <laughs> it up in Quantum of Solace? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, what was what was the point of the Spectre layer? Uh, there was nothing practical about it. There was nothing cool about it it was just a design that they wanted to put in the movie and they needed to do something whereas again i'll go back to moonraker the weird like aztec base and like all those monitors and stuff looks awesome because it's a control center to launch a rocket mm. multiple rockets into space it has a purpose what the hell is that base inspector for that's where they do the thing where they look at people's lives and <laughs> whatever I, I don't get me started <laughs> Uh, I think for me, the dislike I want to call out is something didn't bother me so much at the time, but from multiple viewings, it's, it sort of dragged me a little bit. And that is this film's reliance, somewhat reliance on callbacks 
and people will now start to refer to it as member berries. I don't like member berries unless you're a South Park fan. I guess you understand it. But, you know, just nostalgia. It's leaning on nostalgia. You, the film, it, you, you hear with all the time in the world, you hear the cues of that song, a lot of references to One of Majesties. You, hear, you see the DB5, you see the, the Vantage from Living Daylights. There's a lot of nods to Bond's past in this film. It is the 25th official Eon film. There's a reason to celebrate where Bond has gone and is now going to, which is smithereens. But I just feel like, you know, it, it just feels like a bit of a shortcut sometimes, like an emotional shortcut. When you're playing, you know, we have all the time in the world, you're going to get an emotional reaction out of me. And I just feel that could be a bit cheap at times. Yeah, I I see what you're saying there. Um, I think the use of the song was so perfect. And weaving it into the score, you know, Hans Zimmer, I think, did a really good job. The people that Hans Zimmer pays to write music for him did a really good job. <laughs> oh. It's true. It's true. Look it yeah. up. He has uh, his team. He's, yeah, the team did a great job with the music for the movie. I like the use of the song. I always felt like the end of the Daniel Craig series should be some riff on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Because that is the movie that has been maligned the most. Yeah. It's only in the last decade that people have said, oh, this is one of the greatest Bond films of all time. But as I said earlier in the show, it was the one that was on at midnight on TBS and no one talked about it. It's only now become what it is. And so calling back to this and and making the connection between Daniel Craig's performance and his interpretation of the character and that story, I thought was really crucial. But I I do think I agree with you that there are references that are not necessary um, to move the story along or to make a point. I love seeing Timothy Dalton's car Mm -hmm. from Living Daylights. But did why is he driving around in this car? Does he have how many? Where does he put these cars? (laughs) We've seen his apartment. We've seen he's got like one garage. So where did he get this car? When did he have the time to buy it? Uh, we know what it means, but it doesn't mean anything to to the character, the movie. That's what's so great about in Casino Royale, where he wins the Aston Martin. Because then it, like, you know, it explains what it, means. it. It, yeah. it gives it a genesis. Yeah, I have a fan theory as to all of this because I was wondering also how he afforded his place when he was living in Jamaica. And I was like, wait yep. a second, mm. he probably sold the Skyfall property, and maybe he used that for uh, this new property as well as the cars. Maybe that was how he like re- you know treated himself with retirement. He might have a pension. Yeah. You don't think that MI- MI6 gives a pension out? I don't think it's a very good one, is it? Uh, don't, well, I don't work for them. Don't look at me. <laughs> very, f- very few people live long enough to collect. No, that's true. As we as we know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if but- you finally get there, you get you get a good payment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that the references in this were more pointed and specific than, say, Die Another Day, where he just walks through a room yeah. with a jetpack from Thunderball for no reason. Rosa um, shoe is just there somehow yeah. because reasons. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you, you can point out, like, the, the M portraits in, in the room. Like, why is Robert Brown's portrait in the <laughs> How film? dare you? Yep. <laughs> How does that make sense? It's for us, and it's not for the for the reality of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you and you said this very early on, Dave. You shouldn't really be applying too much logic to a Bond film. It's escapism at its finest. So I will let that sit. Um, okay, before we get to the knock list, 
let's go for final notes. I have a couple of little notes and a question, but I'll go last. Dave, have you got any notes or things you haven't mentioned yet you'd like to bring up? We've talked about the production design, the score. Um, boy, no, I think we covered everything. I feel like this, like to sum it up, this is an ending to the to a part of the franchise, a history of the franchise. It really ties everything up, not just for Daniel Craig, but for, I, I think, our conception of James Bond from the 60s to today. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that whatever they do next, that it feels different. Mm. that it 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 doesn't discard the history but it doesn't do what you were saying which is constantly like wink and nod to all the old stuff that was what was lovely about pierce brosnan's run up until die another day and they just went a whole hog because it was the 20th um mm. is he those movies completely shed the the feeling of the of the classic series if you watch Octopussy and then you watch um, Thunderball or you watch um, Diamonds Are Forever, they all kind of have a similar rhythm. They're, they're long and they have like, you know where something is going to happen um, every step of the way. Like you, you understand the, the tropes and, and, and the format and the structure. It's almost like a TV show. It's mm-hmm. just, there's another, this next week on James Bond, this is going to happen. And they wiped all that off the mat and they said, let's really try something different. And the tone, the, the, the pace, it was all modernized to the point where it felt cool again in, in a way that it hadn't since the 70s. I hope that they can do that with, with Bond going forward because we did get to a point where it stopped being cool. I think this was the movie where truly finally it was like, okay, this is old again. Yeah. They, they, it was been long enough He's old. The, 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 the style of the movies are now uh, out, out of date. The, the born identity was a long time ago. <laughs> like We've moved past mm-hmm. that. So what's next? Is it going to be a John Wick uh, pastiche? Are they going to try to find more of those stylistic um, elements from Wick and add those to Bond? I don't know. I just hope that it feels truly fresh, truly original, and something that surprises me again. I think it's a it's a discussion that we will be having for years until we finally see something actually come out of the uh, Eon facilities. But yeah, yeah I, I I want to I want to just put it all to bed now. What we've had before, we've had a lot of fun with it and sort of move forward with a new vision and a new way of doing Bond films while still paying homage to what Fleming did seventy years ago. Yeah. And I think that's very possible. And I think I trust the team behind it to, to bring us another another good film uh in terms of notes cam have you got anything i had a few things i'll just mention like paloma to me is like such a success but it's also like to me a bit of making up for what they do with monica bellucci inspector where it was like you had someone who was sure. perfect casting for a bond movie and they did absolutely nothing with and it feels like they actually i think maybe took some criticism off that one and said okay let's let's do better and you know the history of Bond is full of that. You know, you look at Lana Wood and Diamonds Are Forever, and you're like, what was that character? I hope that going forward, if you're going to have a small supporting female character in the movies, it's like a Paloma. No more of these uh, Lucias and Plenty O'Toole's. She she should be the benchmark now. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, I also want to just note, I like the motif in this movie of Bond being deafened by explosions. I think that's really well handled. And when I was nice seeing it in the theater with like the AVX sound, it was incredibly effective. 
And just lastly, I really love Daniel Kleinman's opening titles on this movie. Mm. The sequence where it has like the uh, guns that turn into like a DNA strand. Beautiful work from him. I hope he sticks with the franchise going forward. And the Billie Eilish song is not one of my favorites, but I think it actually works very well as opening credits. Just not a song I'll listen to a lot on my own. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my notes. But no, go on, Dave. I was going to piggyback on that really quickly because I realized we didn't talk about the song. The song does, as you said, work great in the context of the movie. It's not something I'm going to listen to for fun in the way that I listen to um, Nobody Does It Better. Uh, but it, 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 does, it does capture that real tragedy, that sadness that you have felt for the last four movies and in that, in that scene right before where he tells Madeline to go kick rocks. Mm. Um, it works really well. It works a lot better than the Sam Smith song from Spectre, yeah. which I think is on the list of the worst Bond songs of all time. That's my least favorite. I think yeah. it's my least favorite too. All Time um, High is pretty bad. Oh. Um, Man with the Golden Gun is pretty bad. All Time I'll High. <laughs> One of the greats. I'll, I'll take that song <laughs> It's a good karaoke. It's a yeah. good karaoke track. Yeah. 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 It, it, I... Um... I was hesitant with Billie Eilish's song when I first heard it, and I'm not a Billie Eilish fan. It's not really my kind of music, but I understand it is for other people, so I'm not going to belittle her sound. But once I saw it with the credits, I was like, perfect choice. You've got it. This works for the film. The tragedy, the sorrow, there's a lot there, and especially towards the end of this film, what this film does, it makes perfect sense. So I'm all on board for Billie Eilish. I think it's probably the third best of the craig era songs yeah and it's incorporated really well into the score yeah some wonderful work there from uh the uh, team uh, at remote control yeah (laughs) yeah the production team behind him uh my two notes were we've we've spoken quite a bit about the death of james bond but it, it is quite the revelation to finally see james bond be offed on the big screen and i think we all have agreed that it was for the right reason and it was done well the question I'll put to you both, because I was a Bond fan, but it wasn't my biggest thing growing up. You two both had far more of a, a, a love of James Bond growing up. Is this how you saw Bond dying? I never saw him dying. I never mm. thought that they would ever dramatize his death, ever. It seemed wow. so absurd, because these movies are they're forever. They <laughs> Diamonds are forever, and so is James Bond. Uh, this is just it's just how it is. Like the end of these movies is supposed to be a happy ending. So the idea that he would ever die seemed ridiculous. Um, but the fact that they did it here and they did it so well is, uh, is really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I'd never really thought about it either because like James Bond is an icon and icons never die. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Daniel Craig that it became someone who was humanized. So then it was like, Oh, okay. I guess this is on the table. And I actually, I mean, even before the movie came out, I really thought they would probably do it. Yeah. Because you just look at kind of what the trends are with stuff like Logan and the Dark Knight Rises. And it's just kind of like, you know, Eon loves its trends. And I think like the way they handle it emotionally works for me like gangbusters. I'm not a big fan of the way they very much reverse engineer how it happens. Like the the kind of the loopholes you got to get through to actually make it happen, I think is a bit much with Sappin. But in terms of an emotional impact, it works. And uh I mean, if you're going to kill him, they did not leave a lot of ambiguity about, you know, <laughs> we never saw a body. It's like we saw him blown to pieces in fire. Just like, I like that. 
We didn't quite get the Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2, like holding onto the chain link fence bus being annihilated, <laughs> but we got about as close as we're going to get in a Bond film. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's time we answer the ultimate question of this show. Is No Time to Die making the knock list? Now, Cam, as we have a guest, please explain for Dave and our listeners, if they haven't heard before, what the knock list is. Yes, the knock list is the uh, tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we talk about a movie, we decide if it belongs on this list. And the list includes, you know, classics like Three Days of the Condor, 39 Steps. Within the Bond universe, you've got Goldfinger made it on, Dr. No and From Russia with Love, and I think... Oh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice as well. You Only Live Twice and Thunderball were pretty contested, though. Uh, and within the Craigs, Casino Royale and Skyfall made it on. Spectre and Quantum did not. Indeed. So two out of the four so far for Daniel Craig have made it on. You know, it, it is the list of the best spy movies of all time. So we do have to be quite, you know, strict with it. Uh, there are only about... 30 films on there of almost 150 that we've tackled on the show so far. So we, we are quite strict with it. But there's three votes this week. Dave, you get the first vote. Do you think No Time to Die should be on the list of the greatest spy films of all time? This is a really tough question. Um, it is significant because the greatest spy character in film history is James Bond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is the movie where he dies. So it's deeply significant. Um, there's a cinematic history uh, and a weight to this movie because of that decision and the execution of that, that decision. But we have pointed out a lot of very um, glaring flaws in this movie. I don't think it's a perfect film. I don't think that it's it works independently of your knowledge of the backstory. As a movie unto itself, there are a lot of things that are unsuccessful. All of all the things that we we brought up, and some things that we didn't bring up. So I have to say no. It's just it, it it's so important to the Bond franchise, but it's not. It doesn't work without you having seen all four of the other Daniel Craig movies, or even all twenty four of the other James Bond films. Period. Yeah, I, I, I cannot argue with that. A very well put point. So that's one no. It's all still to play for, though, Cam. So it really does come down to your vote. I feel like my argument is pretty much the same as Dave's, but I think I fall a little bit on the yes because of just how significant it is to kind of the core of what James Bond is. You know, we will probably never see James Bond die again on screen. Mm -hmm. And when I look at this movie... It feels like it really closes the, the circle very successfully from what Daniel Craig set up with Casino Royale. I think it's a beautifully made movie in so many ways. I find it absorbing to watch. So I'm not knocking it out for um, out of contention for not being entertaining. I think it's an incredibly entertaining movie that I had no problem sitting through its two hours and 45 minutes of the other night. And I will continue to watch it. So I'm going to give it uh, a, a light yes, because I just think in terms of what it is achieving and striving for it does work and it shouldn't work that's also entirely fair i i it's interesting that you've both come down on sort of the same argument but different sides of the yes and no debate there and i completely get it and, and that means there's a one yes one no it means my vote means something for once in a three-way which is actually <laughs> nice to see as well 
I didn't think I would have the responsibility of, of shepherding No Time to Die either way. But I think for me, I agree with you, Cam, in principle. This is a momentous thing in James Bond canon. You've blown up James Bond, you know, as uh, Tiffany Case said. You know, oh, my God, you just killed James Bond. <laughs> they They did it. They actually killed him. And so maybe this should be immortalized on the knock list as a, an important piece of spy media in the canon of spy films. It goes back to the 1920s, 1910s. Um, but here is my issue. If this gets a pass, then the films I've said no to in the past that I think are actually better films... Mm. I would have to rethink my choices and I can't rethink my choices. I think Tomorrow Never Dies is a better Bond film than No Time to Die. And I'd probably fight that fight anyone online who wanted to have it. But I said no to Tomorrow Never Dies. And so by the sort of, you know, trend, like by that logic, I don't think I can allow No Time to Die on there, despite the extra baggage it has for its sort of place in the canon. So I think I'm going to go with my gut, and it might annoy some of the listeners, and I'm sorry. Let us know. Write to us. Tweet us. Whatever you want if you think I'm wrong here, and I'm sure you will, but I'm going to go with no. That's Good fair. Choice. It's fair. Good choice. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like um, I had real issues with You Only Live Twice getting voted on for like the iconography of what it achieved and how important that is in Bond canon. And so in a way, I was making like the argument that you're now making where it's like, that's not enough for me. Mm. Yeah. In that case, you know, you only have twice. That was not enough for me to, to have it on the list. So no, I think with Bonds, especially the ones that are more, po- more polarizing, I think this is a, this is a worthy outcome for the uh, film. Absolutely. And we had a great time with Quantum of Solace as well, but it wasn't quite enough for us. Yeah. But there you go. One yes, two no's. No Time to Die is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Dave Schilling. Yeah. I want to thank you, sir, for taking the time to chronicle the final adventure of Daniel Craig's James Bond with us. Uh, it's been a blast to have you on the show. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad I got to revisit this movie again. It's, it's been interesting giving it like a couple of years to reflect. I, yeah. I thought I'd need more time, but I think I've been able to sort of look at it. And I'm glad we've had this discussion today. For people who are uh, hearing you for the first time on the show, where can people find more from you online? For now, you can follow me on Twitter at Dave underscore Schilling. Whenever I decide to leave, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're, all, we're all just waiting to delete that app, aren't we? It's just, uh, it can happen at any time. Can't wait. Mm. I cannot wait. Mm. Uh, perfect. Well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes below. But Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about the final Daniel Craig James Bond film, No Time to Die. Didn't quite make the knock list despite your protestations, Cam. I fought, Scott, but I didn't quite make it. I guess, you know what? It's okay. I'll sleep at night. It's It'll join Burn After Reading as the ones that I weep over quietly before I go to sleep. Just with the one eye, of course. The other one is cybernetic. <laughs> no, I'm weeping blood, like Le Chifre, taking it back ah, to the beginning. All right, okay. I'll better cut a hole in this chair. And now I teased it at the start of the show, Cam, but we do have some Spy Master interviews for all our lovely Spy Hards, Die Hards out there. Uh, I'll throw it over to you. Who do we have coming up first? Yes, on Tuesday, we are releasing the first of our Bond Spy Master interviews for the week. We are first up going to have Alexander Witt, the second unit director of No Time to Die, as well as Casino Royale, Skyfall, and Spectre. 
He also did some work on The Born Identity, The Hunt for Red October, and a few other notable spy films that you may have heard of. So look forward to that landing this Tuesday, Alexander Witt. And not to be outdone as well, we like to give you more than just the one when we can. And you may have noticed a trend recently of talking to Bond doctors. We, of course, had Dr. Hall from Skyfall, played by Nicholas Wooderson. And then just before that, we also had Dr. Christmas Jones, played by the wonderful Denise Richards. So I thought, hey, let's add one more Bond doctor to the mix. Now, we have on Friday, following the Alexander Witt interview, uh, Bridget Miller joining the show. Now, she's an actor who worked in both Spectre and No Time to Die as Dr. Vogel, one of the uh, Spectre agents. You see her at the conference scene in Spectre, and then she's at the uh, big party in No Time to Die, which we didn't talk too much about in this episode. But uh, yeah, she meets her untimely fate in that party. So yes, look out for Bridget Miller coming on the show to talk all about Dr. Vogel and much more Friday next week. I think this is going to be a fantastic way to wrap up No Time to Die for sure. And a nice way to send off uh, Daniel Craig and James Bond into the sunset. That's right. Um, so your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week for the two Spy Master interviews. But we did have one more announcement to make. As No Time to Die sort of wraps up the Daniel Craig era, because it's his last film, but it also sees the end of James Bond, it's his demise. We've decided to take a bit of a break from all things 007. We're going to, of course, come back to look at the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton films down the line, but taking over the James Bond slot, uh, we might be finally lighting the fuse. Mm, we may be enlisting in an organization that isn't MI6, but is perhaps IMF. Yes, it's about time we uh, took a look at this film series. You've all been asking for it, and it's about time we gave it to you, especially with Dead Reckoning Part 1 in theatres. So, uh, yeah, look out for that in your podcast apps in the coming months. If you like what you heard on this review, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But... Uh, don't worry, listeners, because when it comes to Spy Hard's podcast, James Bond will return. 